So the word passion actually means suffering, the sufferings of Christ. And we've been, you know, we've been walking through a time of suffering maybe in our lives. We've been walking through this Passion Week. We had a Good Friday service here uh, on Friday night and we focused in on you know, the fact that Jesus Christ was actually falsely accused and how he was crucified. And now we've come to the beginning of a new week, you know, because the church calendar set Sunday as the beginning. You know, in the Jewish economy, Saturday was the last day, was the day of rest. And Sunday was a new beginning. And aren't you glad today we have a new beginning? Because of what Jesus Christ accomplished on that cross. And you know, if he would have only died, you know how many thousands of people were crucified by the Romans in that era? Many, many, thousands. And yet, there was only one who came back to life. And that's why we're here today. That's why we're celebrating. Uh, one of the great arguments for the resurrection of Christ is the effect it had on the early disciples. I want you to think about it for a moment. Here was, you know, these men who had followed Jesus. They believed that he was the Messiah. They believed that he was going to overthrow Roman rule. And then that fateful weekend when Jesus was arrested, one of his own disciples had betrayed him. And then he was crucified. And all of their hopes and dreams were shattered. You know, so often in our lives that happens to us that the hopes and our dreams are shattered, and it's hard to, to move forward in that state. You know, we're, we're in a state of loss and grief, and these men were, the Bible says, were in an upper room. They were hidden there for fear of the Jews because they had followed Jesus, and in their minds, they were probably wondering if they were gonna die as well. And everything that they had lived for in the last three and a half years as followers of Christ, they felt was all in vain. And then on that first Sunday morning, that first Easter morning, a handful of women had, been, had gotten up early in the morning. You see, Good Friday, when you understand it from a Jewish perspective, Good Friday was actually the day they were preparing before the Sabbath. On the Sabbath, no one could work. And so Jesus now had died. I brought that out last Friday at three in the afternoon. And before sunrise happens, that's the, actually the beginning of the Sabbath day. And so they had taken his body off the cross and had hastily prepared his body. They knew he was dead because one of the gospel writers says that uh, Nicodemus, not Nicodemus, Josephus, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, member of the Sanhedrin, had come to Pilate and had begged for his body. And Pilate was surprised that he was already dead. And so the Jews, because they didn't want these bodies on the cross, Jesus and the two disciples next to them, they made sure that they would speed up their death. And they were hanging on a cross, continually pulling themselves up in order to breathe. And how people die from crucifixion is that they eventually get weakened and then they sag and eventually they cut off the ability to breathe and they literally choke to death. And so to speed up the process, they broke the legs of the two criminals on both sides of Jesus. But Jesus had already died, and one of the uh, soldiers took a spear and pierced it into his side, it says, and water and blood came from his body. And that, I guess, is a medical evidence that Jesus had died. You know, there's people today that believe that Jesus didn't even die on the cross. There's all kinds of theories about this. 
But how many know that if you're an executioner like these Roman soldiers were, they knew if people were alive or dead, they knew he was dead. And they took him off the cross, and there they began to prepare his body. But they were in a hurry because the Sabbath was now breaking in on them. And so they took the body, and they saw where they placed it in this new tomb that um, Joseph of Arimathea had prepared for himself. He was a wealthy man. Bible says in that day right after the Sabbath, nothing had happened. A stone had been rolled there. The Jewish leaders were concerned about something Jesus had said, that he would rise again on the third day. And so they had posted a guard and set a seal. And then, according to the gospel accounts, there was an earthquake and the stone had rolled away. And there was no body there because Jesus, as we've seen in this little depiction, he literally folded his grave clothes and walked away. Women came to the tomb wondering who's going to move this heavy stone so they could continue the preparation of the body. But when they got there, they ran into two people, dazzling in white, angels saying, he's not here. The one you're looking for, he's not here, he's alive. And so these women now were, you know, remembering back to the words that Jesus had been continuously telling his disciples that he would have to suffer and die. And on the third day, he would rise again. And all of a sudden, those words now came back to their minds and they headed off to the upper room to tell the disciples. And we know the story, Peter, who had denied Jesus. Jesus had warned him, you know, Peter, before this very night, you're going to deny me three times. And so Peter races off towards the tomb. You know, the multiple appearances of Jesus over the next 40 days to various groups of followers and the resultant change in their lives is one of the compelling arguments that Jesus did indeed rise from the dead. What a powerful thing. The impact that Christianity has had upon human history can only be explained by the actual New Testament accounts that Jesus indeed is risen. For over 2,000 years of history, so many people's lives have been changed as a result. You know, I think of Paul, the apostle, who before that was totally opposed to Christianity. He was a zealot. He, was, he, he really believed that this new message was actually a, a distortion of the truth, and so he began to arrest and persecute Christians until that fateful day when he came on his way to the city of Damascus in order to arrest Christians Christ, the risen Christ, appeared to him and totally changed his life. But probably one of the most impacted people during that first Easter weekend was Peter. We know the story, some of us, and maybe you're new, you don't know the story, but this closest follower of Jesus, very impetuous and and, uh, a very brave man in many ways, a real leader of leaders, uh, was even willing to defend Jesus in the garden, even took out a sword to defend Jesus. But when Jesus was now being tried during that fateful night, a young girl came to him and in the midst of all of that crowd, she said, you're a follower of his, are you not? And he said, no, I'm not. He denied Jesus, not once, but three times. And Jesus had told him that was gonna happen. And you can imagine how broken he was that he had let Jesus down. He had even been forewarned that he was gonna mess up, and he messed up anyways. We could talk a lot about in our own personal lives how we can know the right things, but that doesn't mean we always do the right things. 
And as Jesus died and the crowds gathered around the cross and they began to silently fall away, can you imagine that first Easter morning as those women come running up to that room telling them the good news? John MacArthur basically reminds us that it is in fact the most faithful and obedient Christians who often face the greatest spiritual struggles. It's interesting. Just as in a physical warfare, it is those on the front lines who encounter the enemy's most fierce attacks, but just as in a frontline battle, it can reveal courage, but it can also reveal the weaknesses and the vulnerabilities of our lives. And even the most valiant soldier is subject to injury and discouragement. And that is true. I've been a pastor for a long time. I can say that I've witnessed this over and over. I experienced this in my own life. Peter and other disciples were on the front lines when the assault of the enemy came. And as Jesus had forewarned, Satan had desired to sift them, to test them. And you know, God allows testings to come into our lives. But Peter was so self-assured that he declared that though all others might fail, he would remain true. How blind he was to the condition of his own heart. And I would say again, that's probably true of all of our lives, that we don't really know the extent of the true condition of our soul. You know, pride has a way of concealing the weaknesses of our lives. Pride has a way of taking us to a place where God allows us to fall in order to correct us and reveal our great need and our continual dependency upon him. You know, Peter later on wrote a letter, and in 1 Peter he says this, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Aren't you glad that this is the way God does it? You know, when you and I finally come to God on his terms, not our terms, when you and I finally acknowledge we can't do it but we need his help, God responds to us and receives us. But if we're gonna, you know, act like we don't need him, God will let us just go our own way. He'll let us experience the pain of making our own poor decisions. He says there, humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Stand firm in the faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. How many know experience is a great teacher? You know, you can have a lot of information in your head, but until you experience things, it's not really reality to us. You know, what turned Peter around? That's what I want to talk about. What turned him around? Well, I would argue there's two dramatic events that transformed him. One is the day we're celebrating today, Easter. To know that Jesus was alive, to know that Jesus appeared to him, to know that Jesus forgave him changed Peter's life. But how many know 50 days later, while he was in the city of Jerusalem, God said, I'm going to send my spirit upon you. In other words, God says, I'm going to start living inside of you. I'm going to invade your life. And the power of the Holy Spirit came on Peter and on the disciples, and it actually congregated a large group of people who were wondering what in the world was going on. Some of them thought they were drunk. They heard them speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. They saw, you know, miracles begin to happen through these people's lives. But Peter stood up that day and began to preach about Jesus and the resurrection. The Bible says 3,000 people were added to the church that day. You know, one of my thinking, my premises is simply this, that Peter could argue and say, if you want to know if Jesus is alive, just go down to the tomb. It's empty. He's not here. And the fact that nobody could stop this movement 
that has continued on for 2,000 years is a strong argument that Jesus Christ not only died on the cross, but that he was raised back again from the light, from, from the dead. But let me just, I want to just focus on something else. Probably one of the greatest and most powerful arguments is, okay, that happened in history, Pastor. That happened a long time ago, but what about today? What difference does the resurrection make for us today? In other words, so what? So what, Jesus rose from the dead. So what difference does it make? And I want to focus on that statement today. We see it in a changed life 2,000 years ago, but what about our lives? How does this apply to us? And so I want to, I want to focus in today on the three truths that will help us live in the power of this resurrection life. How this resurrection life truly changes us. And really, the first one is the ability to fulfill the law. Now, you say, what do you mean? I, I, I didn't think we have to mess with the law, Pastor. Well, let me just say this. What is really the essence of the law? If you were to read the whole Old Testament, and you were to study the law, and one man came to Jesus and said, okay, Jesus, tell me, you know, what's the law all about? And, you know, Jesus kind of summarized the law in simple, simply two ideas, basically. He's, he, he said the fulfillment of the law is to love God. That's the greatest commandment. To love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is likened unto it. And that is do you love, your, love people, love your neighbor as you would yourself. If you do these two things, he said, you will fulfill the law. In other words, the law is really telling us how to love God, how to relate to God, and how to have a healthy relationship with other people. It's relational in nature. The problem with sin is that it creates alienation. It creates brokenness. It creates you know, fragmentation. It creates disintegration. It, it destroys relationships. And how many, you know, you look around and you can say, there's so many broken relationships around us. And I would argue that it's because of sin. It's because of the, the nature of sin at work in our life where someone is more concerned about themselves than they are about the other person. Listen, if we really loved this other person the way we're supposed to, if we really learned how to love each other the way we ought to, it would change the way we relate to each other. Is that not true? Of course it is. If you began to treat other people as if you wanted them to, to be treated, if you began to show dignity and concern and love and began to encourage and affirm other people, it would be amazing the world we're living in. But that's not what happens, especially when we feel threatened. Especially when we feel insecure, it becomes about us and relationships begin to break down. Our responsibility is to be in a right relationship with God. But you know, many people are not in a right relationship with God. They're in a wrong relationship with him. And Jesus himself came to fix that problem. It's called sin. You know, he began to speak the truth. Not everybody wants to hear the truth. I mean, no, that's true. You know, we want to hear what we want to be, you know, we'd rather hear a lie than hear the truth, especially if the truth is something that's painful. And you know, a lot of people today would rather live a lie. And that's really tragic. So what's the value of being in a right relationship with God? Let me just give you, two, for starters, 
you get acquitted from the penalty of the law. How many know what an acquittal means? Everybody understand that word? It's a legal term. If I was, you know, charged by the courts, if I was charged by the police force for a crime and I went to court and they acquitted me, what would that mean? That would mean I'm not guilty or I'm not going to be processed for this crime. I'm going to be set free. Isn't it an amazing thing that you and I who were criminals in a sense because we'd broken God's law, God is willing to acquit us. God is willing to set us free. That is an amazing thought that we will not have to serve out the penalty for the way we have behaved. And so in the book of Romans, chapter 8, probably one of the greatest chapters of the entire Bible, because this chapter really describes what it's like to experience this life of acquittal, this life of freedom. What it really means to live, you know, a resurrected life. This is the chapter that describes the presence of how God can control our lives and that you and I can live with a supernatural presence guiding us and changing us. If sin brings death, I know we think of death as, you know, physical death, but I'm talking about, you know, spiritual, emotional, you know, sociological, relational death, the separation that happens, this destruction of relationship, this thing that impedes our relationship with God and it affects our relationships with other people. Listen to what Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 2 says, Therefore there is now no condemnation, for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life sets me free from the law of sin and death. You know, when we often quote this verse, we're usually you know, trying to help people deal over the sense of the guilt, the feeling of guilt. How many know guilt is a terrible thing? I've watched it at work in people's lives. You know, some of you in this room, you're, you're driven by guilt. A lot of your decisions are, you know, just driven by a feeling of guilt. You know, that's such a sad way to live life. How many would like to just be free from guilt? Wouldn't that be awesome? How many say that would be an awesome experience? No more sense of guilt. No more sense of shame. No more sense of failure. The good news is that this verse is declaring for all of us the grounds why we aren't condemned. We are free from the judgment of the broken law. We are free from our failures. You know, a lot of people, you know why they don't feel guilt? They just are dead. That's the other, you know, there's two reasons why we don't feel guilt. One is that we don't have any sense of shame. We don't have any sense that I've done anything wrong. And we think we're always right. How many know that can't be true? That's living in denial. I'm going to argue today a lot of people are living in denial. Or there's a lot of people that are walking around, know they're guilty, but they don't want to face up to it. They, don't, they can't be honest with themselves. They have a hard time addressing the past. They have a hard time addressing some of the things they've done, so they try to forget these things. Or they self-medicate. You know, they abuse alcohol and drugs in order to, you know, forget the pain of some of the things that have happened in their life. But I'm here to declare to you today there's a totally different way to process all of that baggage all that garbage, all that stink, all that brokenness in our life. And when we come to Christ, he not only forgives us, he sets us free from the sense of sin and shame and guilt. What a powerful thing that really is. 
We can't even be free from the feelings, uh, sorry, we can even be free from the feelings of being condemned. God is not going to hold us accountable for confessed and forsaken sin. How many say that's great? It's over. It's been paid. Do you know when you and I don't forgive ourselves, what we're basically saying is Christ's sacrifice is inadequate. Can I just say that one more time? When you and I cannot forgive ourselves, what we're saying is Christ's sacrifice is inadequate for me. Some of you in this room, you need to forgive yourself. You've asked God to forgive you. You need to let it go and be free from that condemnation, free from that sense of shame and condemnation. We've been acquitted. We're free from our penalty. We're free to leave death row where execution awaits us. We're free to walk out and we're free to live. Because of the work uh, of Christ on the cross, on what grounds are we free? What's the reason behind the acquittal? Romans chapter eight, verse three, it says, for what the law was powerless to do and that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. So he condemned sin in sinful man. In other words, he condemned sin in, when, he con, when he basically allowed Christ to be crucified. What God was doing was condemning sin. In sinful man. Jesus took on the sin of the entire world. That's why Paul writes this beautiful text here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It says, God made him, speaking of Jesus Christ, who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's, it's a beautiful idea. It's, it's what we call the substitutionary uh, nature of Christ's sacrifice for us. He substituted himself. He died in our place. He took my sin. He's giving me his righteousness or his right standing or relationship with God so that you and I can live before the Father as if we are the Son. I mean, that's an amazing thought. That you know what God has actually done? He's taken us who were, you know, outside of relationship with God and he's brought us into his family and brought us into a standing with him that we become sons and daughters of the Most High God. We become part of God's family. That's an amazing thought. The creator now makes us and adopts us as his own children. The results are instantaneous and then it becomes progressive. You know, one of the problems we have sometimes is we go, okay, I understand this intellectually. I understand that God forgives my sin. I accept the fact that he's done that, but why am I still struggling with sin? That's a great question. Let me just say this. If any man or woman be in Christ, they are a new creation. All things have passed away. All things become new. In other words, you are no longer what you were. But how many recognize that for some of us, if we have lived a sinful lifestyle, we have accumulated and developed some patterns of thinking and behavior that become habitual. They're habits. Follow this? So now, even though God forgives me of my sin, I still have to address some habits. What I call the hangover stuff, the garbage, the baggage. Even though God's forgiven it, 
It's still a part of the way I think. So, look what happens in verse 4 of Romans chapter 8. He goes on to say, In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. So, what happens, according to a New Testament scholar James Dunn, it's not that the law per se from which Paul speaks of being liberated, it is the law as manipulated by sin and death. Remember that the essence of the law is to love God and people. However, the law does not give us the ability to do that. So what does God do? He puts himself inside of us. His spirit comes and lives within us. And so now we have a choice. We're the only people that have this choice. We either choose to yield to God's spirit and become obedient to him and begin to think differently and therefore begin to behave differently or we can choose to remain in the old way of thinking even though God's forgiven us. We can live in this old way of thinking in our head and all of a sudden affects the way we behave. All right? And what I'm arguing today and what I'm trying to say to you is simply this, that there is a power living inside of you that is so great it's greater than your sin. There's a power living inside of you that's so great that it can destroy your sinful thinking and your sinful habits. There's a power so great inside of you that if you will yield to God's spirit, he will begin to change your life. That's what we need to hear. So listen to what Paul says, the apostle. He's writing to the Galatians. He said, if you walk in the spirit, you will not fulfill the desires of the old life, the sinful nature. As a matter of fact, he says the fruit of the spirit, the result of the spirit of God living in you, it's gonna produce something. And you know what the fruit of the spirit is? The result of the spirit is love. That all of a sudden, you and I can become loving. And remember I said, how do, what's the fulfillment of the law? To love God, to love people. What do we have a problem with? Loving. And a lot of times we have a problem with loving is because we've never been loved. And a lot of times because we've never been loved, we don't know how to love. And I'm declaring to you today that God so loved And God put his love inside of you. And God has loved you and I unconditionally so that you and I can experience this love so that you and I can begin to demonstrate and display this love to others. And so the result of love is joy. How many think joy is a nice word? I like joy. You see, one of the expressions of love is joy. What's joy, pastor? It's that sense of well-being in spite of circumstance. How many think that's great? That I can actually feel good in spite of bad things happening to me and around me. I can actually be strengthened by God's joy. And then it says peace. How many think peace is a nice thing? I don't live in torment anymore. I live with a sense of rest in my mind. I'm not living with anxiety. I'm living with a sense of peace. I have patience. Oh boy, I tell you. Patience. How many here say, that's a big issue in my life. I am filled with impatience. And I'm usually impatient towards others. Right? And I'm usually impatient towards myself. I want everything to happen yesterday. And yet God is working, working, working. And then there's not only patience, but kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Whoa, 
Wow, some people are, you know, you look at their lives, they're out of control. When I look at our culture today, it is a culture that's out of control. Very little self-control. And then it says, against such things, there is no law. Because if you live the law of love, you're living above the law. See, if you're living full of God's love inside of you, you're not breaking the laws. Why are laws created to actually restrict bad behavior? How many that say that's what's, what it's about? Why do we create a law? To restrict things that hurt other people. We create these boundaries. But if you have truly the love of God inside of you, you're living above those things because you're not going to be breaking the law. Very powerful. Let me move on to the second truth. The ability to fulfill the law, the, the strength to overcome the sinful nature within us. You know, the Apostle Paul concludes in chapter 7, only Christ can rescue us from the nature of sin. He says, oh, wretched man that I am, who can deliver me? And how, if you read chapter 7 very carefully, it says, the things I want to do, the good things I want to do, I don't do. And the things that I know are wrong that I don't want to do, I do. In other words, he says, it's sin controlling me. He says, who can deliver me? There needs to be a power greater than sin to deliver me from sin. And what I'm trying to say to you today is the fact that when Jesus came 2,000 years ago and was resurrected from the dead, he actually released the power for dead people to come alive. Because what sin does is creates this death between ourselves and God. When you really study the Bible, there's some powerful verses of Scripture that if they really got into our system, it would just totally revolutionize us. See, Paul writes to the Ephesians, he says, if the same, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, if the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, wow. You know, it's the same spirit that resurrected Jesus from the dead. That's the same spirit that lives in us. It's the spirit of the living God who can raise us from our spiritual state of death and help us overcome the power of sin in our lives. How do we do that? Let's get real practical. Because you go, that sounds so good, Pastor, but it just seems a little theoretical to me. So I'm going to move on. Number one, developing the right mindset. The battle in a life is happening in our thinking. That's where the real battle is. It's going on in our minds. Listen to verse five. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. Can I ask a question today? What do you think about? What do you long for? What are you desiring? I want you to be in your own heart and mind. Just answer that question to yourself. What is it that I want above everything else? That's the thing that I keep thinking about. Okay? That's what's guiding your life. That thought. That's controlling you. It's what we think about. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. Now, how many here, you're a Christian now, and you can say, you know what, I find that there's a battle going on inside of me. Anybody? Come on, let's be honest. I got my hand. Has anybody else got? Come on, guys. Is there a battle going on in the inside of you? 
There's a part of you that wants something that you know is wrong and there's a part of you that wants something that you know is right. How many have that battle going on? That's normal. That's the Christian life. Now we have a choice. And here's what determines if we're going to be free or in bondage. If you give yourself to the wrong desire, that desire controls you, whatever it is. So if I give myself to the desires of the sinful nature, I'm going to go out and sin, and eventually that begins to control my life. Even if I'm a Christian, sin can begin to control my life. Okay? But if I choose, and by the way, I have the ability to choose, to do what the Spirit of God wants me to do, you know what starts happening? I start getting free. I start walking in freedom. And the more I do this, the greater the freedom becomes in my life until finally, the thing that I thought I once wanted, I realized, why would I have ever wanted that? It's so paltry. It's so little. It's so belittling who we are as believers. Now, I'm going to keep reading these texts. But to those who live according to the Spirit, they have their mind set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. In other words, we're fighting with God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. Wow, that's strong language. Now, John MacArthur says, obviously there are degrees in both categories. Some unsaved people exhibit high moral behavior. Isn't that true? And on the other hand, many saints do not mind the things of God and are, and, and are as obedient as they should. But every human being is completely in one spiritual state or the other. He either belongs to God or he does not. And so we find in verse 8 that those who are controlled by the spiritual nature cannot please God. That's what the scripture says. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. So what do you have your mind set on? That's determining your life. You better have a high goal. I'm going to argue today, make God your desire. <clears throat> make God the goal of your life. Say, Lord, I want to know you. I'm pursuing you. I'm going after something so much greater than myself. Because you know what the tragedy is? If I go after anything less than that, it's an idol. And what that idol does is promise me a lot of things. But when I get it, I realize how bankrupt I really am, how empty I really am. You know what the midlife crisis is all about? People who are pursuing things who either achieve it or they don't achieve it. And even if you do achieve everything you ever dreamed, you're going to find out you're still empty. Because you know what? You need to have a higher goal. You and I were designed by God to pursue God. Did you realize that? I would argue that your soul will only be truly satisfied when God is invading your soul. Because our soul's capacity is so much greater. That's why people who you know, sin just keep on sinning at greater levels. How many have discovered that? They just go at a higher level. And the people who have more things to sin with just sin all the more. Isn't that true? Sure. If you think people are really satisfied, let me, give you, let me give you an example of how they are not satisfied. Let's say you can have all the money in the world. Let's say you are the most famous person in the world. You have you know, all the beauty in the world. You have you know, everything that your heart could ever desire. You know what I'm gonna tell you? You still wouldn't be satisfied. You know, go ahead. Go down to Hollywood. Meet some of these people who have everything going for them and tell me, 
how satisfied are they really? They're not. There's an emptiness that's driving them on because you see we were designed by God for God. We're designed that way. Now, the temptation of the enemy of our soul is for us to focus on less than God. And that's what idolatry is. Listen to what Colossians says. Since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Paul writing to the Philippians says, your mind or attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. We overcome the sinful nature by not seeking reputation, but rather seeking to serve others and obeying God. We overcome our sinful nature by dying to their desires and obeying what God wants. Now, I remember reading this text of scripture, very beautiful scripture. This is what it said about Jesus in John uh, chapter 14, verse 30. Listen to what it says. I will not speak with you much longer for the prince of this world is coming. That's speaking, that's a title for Satan. He has no hold on me. Why did Satan have no hold on Jesus? Because he had never sinned. Is that powerful? So when you and I are sinning, we're giving Satan a measure of control in our lives. Now do you know why it's important to walk with God? I don't want to have he, him have any hold on my life. You know, Satan has a hold on people because of their fallen nature. Since Christ was sinless, Satan could have no hold on them. I was just reading this in my study notes. When Christ is in control of us, sin and Satan have no control. We need to address the areas in our life that are in conflict with God's word and will so that when the enemy comes, he will not be able to entice us. There will be no area that will keep us from serving God like we should. We are empowered by the Spirit, but not only, uh, we're not only empowered by the Spirit by having the right attitude, but also a new life. In verse 9, it says, You, however, control not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. And if the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to God. And so, so often I get asked the question, everyone who belongs to Christ has the Holy Spirit. You need to understand that. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. You cannot be a Christian apart from the Holy Spirit living in you. What confuses people is the degree to which the Holy Spirit is in control of our lives. So the issue is, how much does God have of you? It's a very simple question. How much of God does he have of you? And you know when people say to me, I want more of God, I said it's simple. Give him more of yourself. You know, actually, here's the reality. It's gonna shock you. You have as much of God as you want. Can I just say that one more time? You have as much of God as you like. To the degree that you give yourself to God is the degree that you have God in your life. How many says it's real simple? I'm, I'm, trying, I'm a simple guy. I'm trying to keep this real simple for us. 
How many say, I want to be controlled by God? I, I don't want to let sin dominate my life. I don't want to let sin ruin my life. I want to be controlled by God. It's real simple. Then I give more of myself to God. Well, Romans 8.10 says, but if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. I like what Dr. Orr says, Edwin Orr. He says, if the Holy Spirit possesses all wisdom, this is how I think, I love this. If the Holy Spirit, if the God himself living inside you, the Spirit of God, possesses all wisdom and knowledge, never makes a mistake, is infinite intellect, the sooner Christian people learn to defer to his superiority, the better. And he gives an example. He said, can you imagine a young student, you know, studying under Einstein? How many know Einstein was a pretty smart guy? Anybody know that? How many know he's a genius? Okay, so you're studying under Einstein, and you come up to him and say, you know, Dr. Einstein, I don't think you're smarter than I am. I think you're wrong with, about this, okay? Now, he's a human being. It's possible he could be wrong. But for the most part, can you think the average person, you know, you're going to talk to him about the theory of relativity, you know? How many here say, you know, he may know more about this than I do. Anybody here probably, you know, I may, if I was a smart person, I probably should just say, you know what, I'm just going to defer to you right now. I think you know more about it than I do. Why is it that somehow we think we know more than God? You see, I, I, here's how my brain works. I just go, God's a lot smarter than me. If he tells me something, maybe I should do what he tells me. It's just a thought. You know, but what do we do? It, you know, the Bible says, don't be wise in your own eyes. A lot of times we say, I think I'm going to go do this. And God goes, the Bible is very clear about it. Don't do that. But we just go ahead and do it. What are we basically saying? I'm smarter than God. Right? How many are getting the point? You know what sometimes has helped me a lot? I just go, God, you're so smart that if you tell me this, even though I don't want to do it, I'm going to do it anyways because I just think you're so smart. Even though I may really want to do this other thing, I just think you're so much smarter than me. Maybe I should just do what you tell me to do here because it's going to probably go a lot better for me than if I do my own thing. But you go, Pastor, I don't even think about it. I just go do the wrong thing. See, that's our problem. We just don't think. Right? <clears throat> can I, can I, I'm going to just put a little plug in here. This is so important. They have done research. I'm not saying all research is good, but they've done some research, and they know for a fact that the people who read their Bibles every single day have a totally different lifestyle than people who only read it occasionally. Do you know that's true? Why is that, Pastor? Because you're, letting, you're putting the thoughts of God in your head every single day. Okay? And what starts happening is you start thinking differently. And after a while, it's amazing what happens. You, you know, if you, if you were, you know, in my head here, I'll tell you what it's like. Here's how my... Because I've been studying the Bible for 40 years. And I'm studying it every single day. And my mind is totally brainwashed. I'm just telling you, I'm brainwashed. Okay? 
But like one old rock and roller said, my brain was pretty sick before, so it needed a good scrubbing. <laughs> but I'll just say this. My mind thinks a certain way. So, you know, I, I see something, and all of a sudden, Scripture verses just start popping in my head. It just comes automatically. I don't even, I don't even have to try. It just comes. Because my mind is geared this way. I'm in the word of God. I've got my mind thinking about the things of God. So you start thinking a certain way. When you start thinking a certain way, you're looking through a lens at life and your brain sees life through this lens. How many know that all of us are looking at life through a lens? You're looking at life through your human experiences. You're looking at life through your background. You're looking at life through the good things that you've experienced and the bad things you've experienced. You're interpreting every word and every experience. You're putting meaning on it from your perspective. How many say that's true? I'm looking at life through this lens. And I'm telling you right now, if you want to have your life re-radically changed, put on a different pair of glasses. And if you put the word of God on, you're going to start seeing life through the lens of God and you're going to start thinking the way God thinks and you're going to start acting the way God acts. You are going to become godly or godlike. See, how many are catching on? So I'm actually explaining to you today, you know, Jesus rose from the dead. We can all stand up and go, yay. And then I can say, so what difference has it made in your life? You go, really not a lot. <laughs> well, what good is it? Right? Well, I got my sins forgiven. Great. But are you living free from sin? Well, not really, pastor. I'm still struggling with all these issues. And I'm saying today, today is a day you and I can be free. Today is a day we can live in this freedom. Today is a day that we can appropriate what the resurrection was meant to accomplish in our lives. And so I'm going to stop right there. I said enough this morning. You got a lot to think about. It's okay, I got a lot of notes, but we can come back to this idea another time. Let's just stand. I want to let you out on time because I want to give you a chance to respond today. Because, you know, it's, it's great to be listening to this, but the, the thing is, so what difference does it make? That's what I'm trying to get across to you. Here's what I'm going to say to you today. There was a story that actually happened the week that Jesus was crucified and was raised from the dead. Jesus came back into the place called Judea. His life was threatened. He already knew he was in trouble, but he came back anyways because he knew he was going to die for us. There was a friend of his named Lazarus. Lazarus had died. He had been in the tomb for four days. How many know that something happens to the human body after four days? What does happens to the human body when you die? It starts decomposing. Now, after four days of somebody decomposing, one of the reasons why the ancient people used a lot of perfumes and stuff was because the body began to rot. And how many know it usually gave out a bad odor? It starts decomposing. It stinks. Jesus comes along, and they said, you know, Jesus, if you had got here a few days earlier, you could have healed this guy, and he would have never died. And you know what Jesus said? I am the resurrection and the life. 
He who believes in me will never die. I mean, they're going, really? Wow, it's pretty intense. What does that mean, Jesus? Well, I'll give you a demonstration. Roll the stone away. This guy was sealed in a stone too. They had a little cave, you know, they rolled stones over. Roll the stone away. And then the Bible says, Jesus shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he started hopping out of the tomb. Dead four days. That's, I don't know, some of you guys that are medical people, brain's not working, organ's not functioning. How many go, this is an out and out miracle? There's no way to describe. This is like beyond anything we can really relate to. Can you, can you imagine these people's eyeballs? I mean, you know, guy's dead. You know, I've always thought about this. You know, you're doing a funeral, somebody's lying in a cask, all of a sudden they just get up and walk out. I mean, that would be pretty intense. How many say that's kind of an intense moment? This is a very intense moment. Matter of fact, I love the religious leaders. It says a whole bunch of people believed in Jesus, and some of them said, if we don't kill him pretty soon, everyone's going to follow him. This is so stupid, I think. You know, like, wow, where are you guys coming from, right? People that are, they, they were even thinking about killing Lazarus because, you know, he was living evidence, you know. He's in living evidence that Jesus had power over death. Now, that's physical life. I mean, that's, that's an amazing story. I believe it. I believe he did that. I believe Jesus is the resurrection. But you know what? As bad as physical death is, there's a death that's far worse. It's called spiritual death. Spiritual death means I'm dead to God. And maybe you're here today and you go, Pastor, I have no thought of God in my life. I'm dead to God. There's no, there's no even desire for the things of God. Let's just be honest. There's nothing there. I'm dead to God. Can I tell you this morning, you're not here by accident. I was up really early this morning, normal for me on Sunday morning, met with the men in our church at eight o'clock, we were praying. You know what I said, God? Bring people here who are dead to you. People who have no intention of being here today. People who actually, you know, I think of C.S. Lewis. He said, I was a reluctant person. I came kicking and screaming into the kingdom of God. It's almost like God took him by the scruff of the neck and just brought him into his kingdom, you know? It's, it's this idea of God commanding life into our lives. And maybe you're here today and you say, you know what? If I go after the whole world, I gain the whole world, but I lose my own soul, I will be empty. I want to declare the good news to you today that you don't have to be empty. You can connect with the one who created you. And you and I can live eternally with Christ with joy with peace with hope with grace with goodness because deep down inside really that's what we want we just haven't articulated it we don't even understand it all the money in the world is not going to make you happy won't do it knowing Christ will set you free today you're here and you're saying you know what I want this I want what you're talking about I want to experience that life that you're talking about just with every head bowed right now let me just ask the question of you today I'm not here to embarrass you I'm not going to make you join anything except for Christ 
I'm going to ask you to join Christ. I'm going to ask you to receive Christ. I'm going to ask you to give your life to Christ and begin to experience this dynamic life. That's you today. God, speak into your heart. Don't resist them. Just raise your hand and say, yep, Pastor, I want to join Christ. I want to experience this life, this powerful life. Yes, I see hands. That's great. Yeah. God bless you. Anybody else? People are responding this morning. That's good. Let me ask the Christians here in the auditorium. You know Christ. You say, you know, Pastor, I'm not living a victorious life. Sin is controlling my life, not the Spirit. That's you today. God's speaking to you. You want to be free. Just raise your hand. That's you. Come on, just weigh up. Come on, don't be ashamed. I'm not here to judge you. God's not here to condemn you. He's here to forgive us. He's here to set us free. That's what it's about. I'm going to pray right now for you that God would set you free. To whom the Son has set free is free indeed. Isn't that great? To live this life in freedom. To live this life in joy. Wow, this is so good. What an exciting life. I, I, you know what, I, I'll tell you. I have been so blessed for all of these years. Over 40 years, I've known Jesus. It has been an exciting journey. The most exciting journey. He has helped me overcome things. He's helped me to process brokenness in my life. He has set me free from sin. You know, he's working on me still. He's not done. I'm not, I haven't arrived. I'm not there yet. But he wants to do this great work. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you for those that responded this morning. Those that said yes to you, Jesus. Even now as they're praying, say, Jesus, come into my life. Forgive me. I want to know you. I want to experience this dynamic resurrection life. I want to be set free from sin. I pray today, Father, that you would deliver us and set us free, that we would begin to enjoy you like we have never enjoyed you before. It'll be greater. It'll be more intimate, more powerful, more dynamic than ever before. And I thank you for that. In Jesus' name.